the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Proft Show or at Dan Proft, now that I'm out of uh, Twitter prison for having tweeted out Larry Elder's, the title of Larry Elder's movie, which we talked to him about on Friday, remarkably. But, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, Twitter for you. i got, I got to get on Parler. Uh, anyway, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get right to it, starting with uh, Trump's reelection prospects and how much concern there is about that. Uh, I wanted to uh, address a tweet that uh, came over the transom this morning. Charlie Gasparino over at Fox Business uh, breaking uh, GOP operatives are for the first time raising the possibility that Donald Trump could drop out of the race if his poll numbers don't rebound. Over the weekend, I spoke to a sample of major players one described uh, Trump's current psyche as fragile. And uh, Gasparino goes, I'm not convinced yet. He's got time. He's running against opponents, literally hiding in the basement. Uh, but that uh, the speculation indicates how tense GOP operatives are about Trump losing and the party losing the Senate, and having their entire agenda abolished in a leftist wave election. Uh, OK, uh, I'm not disputing that's what Charlie Gasparino heard from who, whomever he heard it from. But it sounded to me like. GOP operatives who are outside of Trump world. And so I spoke to one this morning who is inside Trump world and very close to the campaign and the president. Uh, and he said that is no, there's no such possibility. That is not true. So, you know, Gasparino's uh, a big shot and I'm just a little guy. So his tweet is getting a lot of play. But I just wanted to respond to that because I talked to somebody who uh, knows up from down when it comes to what's going on in the Trump campaign. That said, it doesn't mean that uh, all things are hunky-dory in Trump world. They certainly aren't when you have Ed Rollins, the co-chairman of the pro-Trump super PAC, Great America, saying you can't win with these numbers. They're atrocious numbers. This in a Washington Post post over the weekend. Rollins adding the president must straighten his campaign out and convey to the American people that he can move forward and lead. He's got to go out and add 10 points pretty quick. If he can do that, he'll win. If not, Biden is sitting there at as the alternative in his basement, as Gasparino noted. And it doesn't help when you have unforced errors like his tweet over the weekend, uh, thanking the people of the villages, this uh, Florida retirement community that included somebody on a golf court displaying a pro Trump sign and saying white power. Uh, and, uh, president Trump saying, you know, he didn't watch the video to hear that person say that thing and doesn't know the context of it, whether it was joke or not not funny. This isn't the time for that. Uh, And this is not to indict President Trump the way the left would, that this is some sort of uh, 
smoking gun of his uh, racism or his, uh, you know, appeal to uh, uh, to racism in order to secure the white vote or some portion of the white vote or to to uh, provide uh, red meat to his base. All of that is the caricature of the president as well as his supporters by the leftist media. It's nonsense. So I'm not giving that any quarter, but it's an unforced error. Think about what he could be focused on. He could be focused on Tim Scott's police reform bill, and he could be focused on Nancy Pelosi's absurd, outrageous commentary about Tim Scott and his Republican colleagues in the Senate that every American should hear and which uh, upon which he doubled down or actually tripled down because as we played, uh, I believe it was on Thursday show, maybe Friday show. Anyway, we played last week, Nancy Pelosi saying, right, the GOP bill not only is tokenism, as Dick Durbin characterized it, but is the GOP, Senator Tim Scott and his GOP colleagues trying to get get away with the murder of George Floyd. Asked about it again, said the same thing. You frequently criticize the president's rhetoric. So why do you think it's appropriate to suggest the the Republicans are trying to get away with the murder of George Floyd for their handling of police reform? I, I think George Floyd's murder would have been prevented if our bill that we have now is um, were, in, were the law of the land. And that's what we're talking about is how we go forward. Yeah. Was I don't have any. I don't know. Hmm? No, no I do not. Far? I do not. I do not. I'm Did telling not go you, too far. we're talking about something that is uh, an incident that everybody saw the martyrdom. Everybody saw eight minutes, 46 seconds of a knee on the neck. That should. And then they come up with a bill that says, or the president comes out with his, whatever it is saying, um, uh, no choke holds, but maybe some. Yeah, no, I have no, absolutely not. We are talking right now. The administration in terms of uh, their denial, their delay, on the coronavirus caused death. Add that to your bill of particulars. Policy has an impact, and and we can prevent future deaths if we ban the chokeholds. I'm fully committed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can prevent future deaths. So, I mean, almost as outrageous as the claim that the Republicans are responsible for trying to get away with the murder of George Floyd, their accomplices after the fact, is the idea that because you ban something that you would have prevented deaths that occurred or that you'll necessarily prevent us on a go forward basis. That, that's not about preventing death. I mean, you'll know that the Minneapolis officers involved in the George Floyd matter are all facing criminal charges are all under indictment. So they already violated the law. The law holds people accountable for violating interactions with other people, Right as well as some things that they do individually, of course. But the law is an accountability mechanism. Yes, it has a deterrent effect, but that deterrent effect was already in place and not apparently respected by those Minneapolis police officers, starting with Derek Chauvin, as has been the case in other matters. So, I mean, the presumptuousness, in addition to the ignorance, it's an intersection where a lot of accidents occur. This is what Trump should be focused on in trying to advance something in the area of police reform that could be edifying to the public and to the police to try to address one of the burning oil derricks metaphorically on the horizon. He could be 
addressing something that Tucker Carlson brought up last week, a feeling in America that uh, he is not rising to the challenge of the mobocracy, the rebellion afoot, if you will, to protect and defend people, that he, people are feeling neglected and undefended. Tucker Carlson played a chilling 911 call from a, a mom in a car with her daughter in Fredericksburg, Virginia, during the uh, protests, which turned into unrest in certain places, including Fredericksburg. Listen to this. Listen to this exchange. They're, they're on my car, right? They're on my car right now. So we would suggest you slowly drive through the area. Don't hit anyone with your vehicle. I your can't. I cannot get out of here, okay? You have to be patient, but I'll, I'll let the officers know, okay? Are, are you serious? The you guys told us cannot... that we can't do anything, ma'am. The city told us that this is a sanctioned event. Get out of my car! You know, this is going to get dangerous. I got a kid here. Yes, ma'am. We would suggest that you call up City Hall to let them know about your frustrations. Get we're all out very frustrated. Of And the response from the 911 dispatchers, we can't do anything. We can't do anything. Call City Hall and uh, tell them your frustrations. Well, whether it's City Hall that told police to stand down or it's police standing down on their own, I don't know what the situation is. Fredericksburg is. But that's what Tucker Carlson is arguing. That's an example of what he means when he argues that people are feeling neglected and undefended. That in the last several weeks, President Trump hasn't been as forceful against the the mob and the barbarians, uh, those who believe uh, in the justification of violence, those who characterize looting as symbolic takings, he hasn't been as forceful as he needs to be to make sure that people are clear that he has their back, that he is law and order, and that law and order will reign under a Trump presidency, that no man or woman is above the law, regardless of what they believe their righteousness of their cause to be. Mm. And uh, something else. What was Trump's value proposition in 2016? Drain the swamp. Translation, I am going to go after all of those people who have lorded over your life to your detriment. That mob. Well, people need to feel that he's continuing that fight on their behalf and he needs to be speaking about them and their interests, not about him and what he perceives as his unfair treatment by the press all the time. This is not a time for navel gazing. This is a time for reminding people on which line, uh, which side of the skirmish line Trump stands and for whose benefit he stands on that side. He's got up his game. Uh, I think Tucker Carlson has it in part right. I think there are opportunities that are being missed. There are unforced errors that are being made. And he's uh, suffering a crisis of confidence among some who voted for him or against Hillary Clinton and by default for him in 2016. And he needs to reestablish that confidence. This is Dan Prof. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Brian Gumbel, longtime sportscaster and TV host. Uh, you know, he's had that long-running series on HBO called Real Sports. 
He closed his uh, most recent edition of Real Sports on HBO with what else? Uh, Brian Kumble's words of wisdom on matters of race. And he uh, chose that occasion to talk about the black tax, as he terms it. He and uh, his friends, so he says, term it the black tax that Brian Gumble has paid for his seven decades on this planet and is tired of paying. The black tax. It's not an IRS thing. It's the added burden that comes with being black in America, and it's routinely paid, no matter how much education you have, how much money you make, or how much success you've earned. The black tax is about more than just the added stares, whispers, and suspicions when you're out and about. It's about the many instances of disrespect and incivility your color seems to engender, and being expected to somehow always restrain yourself, lest you not be what white Americans are never asked to be, a credit to your race. It's about living a life that included your father having to leave home to earn his law degree, even though he was an honor student and a decorated war veteran. It's about your son getting arrested for doing nothing more than walking while black. And it's about having to be more concerned than your white friends and associates for the safety of your grandkids. It's about the day in and day out fatigue of trying to explain the obvious to the clueless. It's about being asked to overlook blue failings and white failings so they can be conveniently viewed as black issues. It's about being asked by so many what they should do or say about race when the easy answer lies in the privacy of each person's heart. It's the black tax. It's paid daily by me and every person of color in this country, and frankly, it is exhausting. I've been paying the black tax in America for almost 72 years now, long enough that I shouldn't have to ask others to simply accept one very basic reality, that our black lives matter. For more on that commentary, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Latasha Fields, co-founder and overseer of Our Report Ministries and Publications. She's also the founder and teacher at a group Christian Academy, Homeschool Academy. She's the director of Christian Home Educator Support System and uh, state coordinator of Illinois for parentalrights.org. Latasha, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan, for having me. It's a pleasure. What do you uh, say? How do you react to what Brian Gumble said about the black tax? Uh, yeah, this this whole issue with, with Black Lives Matter is a vexation. It's exhausting. But I definitely, uh, my husband and I, we beg to differ because we believe the smoking gun, if you will, is not the things that he stated, but for us and many of us is, is, the, is the democratic policies. Because what we fail to realize as Blacks, African Americans, is that we don't have to succumb to these disproportionate realities that are presented before us. And so that's what we're trying to get um, our people and those that, that support the truth, if you will, that this does not have to be, that the problems that we're facing, the Black socioeconomic problems that we're facing, it starts with us first. We're accountable for our own actions. And so that's what Black Lives Matter. And then this, this hypocrisy with this movement is just egregious because what we're seeing all of us all over this world is that obviously uh, black lives doesn't matter until a white person does something or a white cop does something. And this is not to say that the police brutality is not inconceivably wrong. It's, it's absolutely appalling. But what about the, the black abortion rate? They don't want to talk about that. And what about this disheartening of this black on black crime? What do we say to those things? You know, I've been really following and studying uh, the Black Lives Matters movement and, 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 and agenda, and, it, and it, is, it is woefully demonic. 
uh, that for us, what we're seeing in black and white, it's, it's the LGBT movement for sure, and it's dismantling uh, America's Western civilization of heterosexual families. It wants to dismantle the nuclear family. And, and that, that is the bottom line. It wants to destroy this country. And it's using black people. We're like the arrows in their quiver, if you will, to destroy this country. And on top of that, destroying us from within. And it's an explosive thing that is just, it's just mind-boggling what this agenda is about. Because if you really, anybody, black or white, if you really cared about life and the lifespan of anybody, every life will be valued. That is not a cliche. And people, you know, toss that around and come against that like that's, that's some kind of cliche. That's not a cliche. There's no immeasurable value you can put on a person's life. And when you got black women murdering their babies at up with 46%, how dare you tell me that black lives matter? How could they matter when we are allowing black women to kill their own offspring? How could they matter when our black men are killing other black men? Are we not our brother's keeper? So it's hypocrisy. It's woefully hypocrisy. Well, why, and, it, and until blacks go, go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. No, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to interrupt, but but I mean the, the the violence this weekend and really every weekend in Chicago, 61 more people shot, 15 fatally, including uh, a one-year-old uh, last and mm-hmm. a ten-year-old. Last week it was a three-year-old and a couple of teenagers, uh, in addition to the, the you know that were part of the carnage, and and, and you get this the same platitudes from the political leaders in Chicago. Enough is enough. I'm tired of going to funerals. I'm tired of the violence. We need help from the community. Why is it, do you think, that um, that you have uh, elected officials in Chicago, be they black or white, be they mayors or members of the city council, that just are, are never held accountable for the carnage that happens on their watch by their constituents? First of all, Danny, we all know what we're seeing is policies. That's the problem. They have a good talk, but they're not doing anything to change the policies. Because people, you got to understand, even when you read Black Lives Matter, if you don't read it with the lenses that we're reading, everything on the surface sounds wonderful. It sounds good. But at the same time, it's hypocrisy. That's the definition of hypocrisy. You're saying one thing, but you support and you do something else. And that's the problem with these leaders. Like you say, black or white, they're saying all these things on the campaign trails, if you will, when something happens, but yet you continue to, to devise policies that are completely and woefully contrary to the way people live their lives. You know, regularly, even yesterday, my, my husband and I, we were at an event. You're always talking to black people that from the heart, from the core of our heart, their interest does not lie in the Democratic Party. And so we're constantly asking them, why do you continue to vote against your values? Why do you continue to vote against your beliefs and your interests? And so we got to understand, and I've said it many times before, until leaders, the church, people, parents begin to look at seriously, regardless if you believe in Jesus Christ and not in the things of God, until people begin to look at family differently, nothing is going to change in this country because everything that we can get on the radios and the social medias and talk about, every issue that we can talk about that is plaguing our society, it is the, it is the deterioration and the dismantling of family. The enemy is attacking family. He's not just attacking money. He's not just attacking legislative policy. It is to disrupt and to destroy family. And until we see 
that be it black or white family needs to be restored and we need to be encouraging moms and dads to take responsibility back over their children, we're going to continue to have these problems. Uh, that is the problem. They do not care about family. When we come back with Latasha Fields, I want to ask her about uh, what BET founder Robert Johnson said about uh, considering a new party only for black Americans. More of Latasha Fields next. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with Latasha Fields, and I want to get to what uh, BET founder and billionaire businessman Robert Johnson had to say in a wide-ranging interview last week, uh, saying that uh, neither Republicans or Democrats are serving black Americans particularly well, so why not a third party just for black Americans? What do you think of that, Latasha? I, I, I don't necessarily think we, we need a third party. I just think we need the parties that we have to understand what family means, what, what it means to have a democracy. Um, now, I do agree the Republicans don't necessarily represent me either because their voice is silent. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, if I win and if I vote, I'm definitely going to cast my vote to the Republican ticket because one thing I do say, you know, when you read their platform, that the, the, the platform of the Republican Party is definitely the American values, is definitely parental rights, biblical worldview, Judeo-Christian values. But in terms of strategically uh, advocating for blacks, you don't necessarily see that. But the flip side, I think who should take the lead for the problems that are plaguing black America is blacks. And so we're seeing that on the rise. And so I think that's what needs to happen. But we also do need our white counterparts to come to the forefront and for the Republican Party to stop being afraid, if you will, to to speak what is right. You're not racist or you're not just advocating just for blacks. What is happening in this country is wrong. And I do believe there's a cultural and spiritual aspect of racism in this country. But then I also believe you cannot create a law in, 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 in D.C. To, to, to make people like you. The only law that can transform the minds and the hearts of the people is the law of Christ, whether people want to receive it or not. And so that's the law that needs to be encouraged. There needs to be a, a, a transformation within an individual. And then on the flip side of that, what I want to say to black America, if white people don't like you, so what? Why does that hinder your life? Why does that emotional thought, that emotional thought process hinder your life? Because me and my husband ask blacks all the time, well, do we live in a different country? Because we've, we've done fairly well with all this racism. We, we, we've made moves. We take care of our children. We've done right. We have not succumbed to the so-called systematic racism that, that they say is happening. No. What's systematic and strategically is the Democratic Party that goes all the way back to the 1700s, 1800s. That's what has not changed. The big switch was blacks. You switched. The party didn't switch. You switch. You stop upholding your values and what you stood for. You switched. Because now all you see is immorality in our community. They don't want to talk about the fornication that's happening in our community. You know, I've been blamed. You know, you don't want to call black women promiscuous. Well, I had a baby at 17. Was that not being promiscuous? 
We have to call these things out. This unwed pregnancy, these teen pregnancies, this abortion, the juvenile detention rate, the high incarceration rate, the black on black crime, the education inequality, black kids being trapped and failing schools. This is policies, Dan. And blacks have succumbed to them. And until they wake up and see how they have been bewitched, there's not going to be any difference. Because our ancestors have, have, did not fight for this. Martin Luther King and all the civil rights leaders, they did not fight for 50 years later for us to succumb to government dependency, welfare dependency, big government. This is a capitalist society. This is free enterprise. What happened to trade skills, trade schools, education, vocational school, things that Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass and Harry Tubman and all these wonderful patriots stood on? And then they want to say American is intrinsically racist. Well, how do you account for all the prosperous and successful blacks in this country? Granted, how do you explain Barack Obama? Granted, I detest his policy, but how do you explain a black man that not had one term as president, but two? How do you explain that black America? How do you explain the, all the black celebrities that want to raise their voices about America ain't great? Well, how do you explain your million dollars? How do you explain your gated community? How do you explain your achievement if America is so racist? That's what I want to ask black celebrities and actors and, and politicians and all these wonderful black people that are successful. Granted, we own a roughly less than 1% of the wealth in this country, but even in the 1%, how do you explain it? Oh, barriers? Of course we have barriers. Of course we've seen struggle, but how do you explain, I've heard recently, America was never great. Well, look like the day that you succeeded and got a number one record or a Grammy Award. Look like that was the day America was great then. It was great for you. So that's bull. Yes, we are facing all kinds of disparities, but that has nothing to do with our achievement. Uh, That's what we need to wake up to. Let's hold it right there, Latasha. When we come back, I want to talk about schooling with the prospects of uh, schools reopening in the fall and uh, focus in on a letter written by the leadership of a Christian academy in far west suburban Chicago to the uh, commissars at the state level in Illinois about constitutions, both the United States Constitution and the Illinois Constitution when it comes to private schools and public schools as well, for that matter. Uh, and that would include homeschooling families like Latasha's. More with Latasha Fields now. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Latasha Fields, and I want to go back to uh, the matter of K-12 through education for a moment because you're uh, an educator and you run a homeschool academy. A, a uh, Christian academy in Yorkville uh, out in uh, the western, far western burbs, Parkview Christian Academy, sent a letter to uh, the public health uh, commissars as well as the uh, Illinois State Board of Edu- Education commissar uh, saying, among other things, nowhere in um, the uh, six pages of guidelines for reopening schools, uh, nowhere in those six pages do I see any citation to the United States Constitution, Illinois Constitution, Illinois Department of Health Act, Illinois School Code, or any legitimate legal source for that matter, which purports to delegate your administrative agencies any lawful authority to mandate such rules upon private or public schools, or more directly, the parents and school children of our state. Health authorities cannot promulgate and enforce rules 
which merely have a tendency to prevent the spread of contagious and infectious disease. And they cite uh, a, uh, a court case on the matter. Basically, the message from Parkview Christian Academy to these state actors, Illinois State Board of Education and Dr. Zike, the Illinois Department of Health director, uh, we will determine what additional health and safety protocols we might choose to add to our current guidelines for the upcoming year. Um, you know, again, with respect to schooling and the importance of education, and, and you mentioned the failing schools in Chicago, which are well documented. Uh, how important is it for you to get, uh, in, you know, in, in your homeschooling families, to uh, make sure they are not entangled uh, in state restrictions and we can proceed with education as we've historically provided it, particularly in the good settings, come the fall? Yeah, I agree exactly with the letter that the church sent. You know, there there is no constitutional amendment where, where the federal government, later, you know, our state can control education. So I completely agree with that statement. Um, and and you guys know my advocacy is to get them out because it's 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 a it's a a second biggest biggest issue, if you will, over the the whole uh, coronavirus epidemic or pandemic, if you will. There's an educational pandemic as well. So I am not an advocate for public education, regardless. Period. Um, my advocacy is to get them out. My advocacy is to create your own schools. You know, it, it, it's time for us to pick up the torch and stop fighting for these governmental schools. You know, we are in America. We have all kind of privileges in this country. This is a great country. And we need to take advantage of some of the liberties and freedoms that we have. And we have the freedom and the right to create our own schools. And so instead of fighting them to change their schools, hey, mine is a mass exodus, give them their schools. Yes, I understand the tax dollar is another conversation for another day. But until we can get those those policies changed, we need to get our kids out of the school because even with the health guidelines that's coming into the fall, July 1st, I have a Zoom presentation that we're going to launch to discuss uh, the, the academic and the secular humanistic part of what's going to happen to our children here in Illinois, July 1st, where this LGBT history curriculum will become mandated, will become law. And so our children will be exposed to to, to, to hyper-sexualizing them and, 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 and indoctrinating them and desensitizing them in terms of the complete LGBT curriculum movement. And this is not just about their cultural contributions to society. This is about their sexual behaviors and preferences. You know, and so we, parents need to exercise their parental rights and their school choice. This is a warning. This is not a game. Everybody's warned about these kids being valedictorian and accelerating their academics, and I'm not downsizing that. But what matters more to parents? That's what I want to just have a conversation with parents. What matters more to you, especially if you are believing in Jesus Christ, that they just be successful and they go to hell? And, and their souls hanging in the balance, you prefer them to be desensitized about the heterosexual relationship that male and female is who reproduce the world, which is normal, which is not a distortion of God's creation. You're okay with your children learning that because you weren't about algebra? Really? That's my, that's my advocacy, Dan. It hurts because our children's souls are in danger and all parents want to worry about is education in terms of the, the math and the sciences and the social studies. Look, this is a warning. I'm not even concerned about the health right now in terms of those guidelines because you can pull them out of school. Get those kids out of public education. Stop being worried about their academics in terms of the core. They're going to get those things. 
Create your own schools, homeschool your children, connect with people like me. There's millions of us across this country. You don't have to just call me and connect with families. Tell your pastors, get your kids out of the school. Again, stop being so concerned with academics. If you are a believer, now if you're not a Christian, maybe that's not a concern to you. I don't know. People have many religious beliefs. But if you're not concerned about the weight of your matters of your child's soul with them literally being destroyed in their mind, you know how I many, I mean, we, 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 we were by academic. Look at George Soros and all these people, Bill Gates. They are very intelligent, very smart people, have high academic levels. But look at their character. Look what they promote. That's what you want for your children? Go ahead. Let them be accelerated in all the academics. But where would they be in their character? Where would they be in their character? How would they view the world? How are you going to answer God in the day of judgment when blood will be on your hands for what you allow these systems to teach your babies? And then I get so sick of parents being egregious behind caring for their children in this capacity. If you wasn't ready to be a parent, you shouldn't have had them. You can't be egregious because we've been conditioned to outsource our children six to eight hours a day. How dare we as parents get upset when we have to take full responsibility over the entire welfare of our children? Stop that, parents. Stop getting upset because you have to teach your children. Stop thinking you're inadequate to teach your baby. You are the best teacher for your babies. Those are your babies. No one in this world can give them what you can give them. And whatever tools and resources you think you lack, call on your sister or brother. Call on your mama, your pastor, your friends, family. Information is readily available in this age of social media and Internet. There is no excuse for parents to be egregious behind caring for their children in this capacity. There is no excuse for this. She is Latasha Field. She's the co-founder and overseer of Our Report Ministries and uh, Publications. She's the founder and teacher of a group Christian Academy. She's the director of Christian Home Educator Support System and the state coordinator in Illinois for parentalrights.org. Parentalrights.org. Latasha, always a pleasure. Appreciate your passion. Thank you, Thanks for joining thank us. Yes, yeah, thank you. Shaking the world, done shaking the world, done shaking. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. At the top of the show, I was talking about the things that President Trump could be talking about, the arguments he needs to make. Well, another one that I want to make mention of, given the important decision the Supreme Court handed down today in the Louisiana pro-life law case. Another one is about Supreme Court justices, because uh, if you thought that uh, this was no longer Kennedy's court after President Trump was able to nominate a a replacement for Anthony Kennedy, as well as for Antonin Scalia, that, that would move the court in a more conservative direction, perhaps it has on some issues, regulatory issues on moral and cultural issues. Obviously, with Gorsuch's defection in the 
trans rights case, the Civil Rights Act case, and uh, Roberts continuing his judicial activism, shall we say, finding cover stories to side with the left from Obamacare now to this matter of the Louisiana pro-life law that would require doctors to have admitting privileges at a local hospital in order to perform abortions. Justice Roberts uh, siding with the four leftists on the court and striking down the Louisiana law using uh, stare decisis precedent as his cover, suggesting that the Louisiana law was almost indistinguishable from a 2016 Texas law that was struck down in the uh, whole women's health case. And so he was bound by precedent. You know, it's very much like um, leftists who invoke the Constitution when it's convenient. Sometimes I'm a constitutionalist and a strict constructionist and I reference the document and other times it's a workaround. That seems to be Justice Roberts's Chief Justice Roberts judicial philosophy as well. This was a case that David French characterized last year when the court decided to grant it cert and take it up. The court will decide the most consequential abortion case in a generation. If it overturns the Fifth Circuit and reaffirms the 2016 Texas president, then the message is clear. The court is not substantially different. Even though the, though he is retired, the court will still be Kennedy's court. And stare decisis will continue to trump the text, history, and clear meaning of the Constitution. Well, that's what happened today. It's still Anthony Kennedy's court. And it's likely that the next president will be able to nominate at least two Supreme Court justices with the uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health condition. And I'm not rooting against her being healthy as long as she can be. I'm just stating the obvious. And uh, Justice Breyer's interest in retiring as well. It's likely not definitive, but it's likely the next president will have two Supreme Court appointments. So, frankly, it's another argument that Trump has to make the same one he did in 2016. And there will be parts of 2020 that should be a rerun of 2016 because Obviously, he's done what he could. Gorsuch and Kennedy, I mean, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are both good nominations and good appointments, despite Gorsuch's abdication in the civil rights case I referenced and we discussed on this show. But there's more work to be done. He nominated two good jurists for the two appointments he had. We're going to need one or two more, at least in these times. And that is a real value add that you get with a vote for Trump in 2020 the same way you did in 2016. And uh, he needs to be focused on that because it uh, motivates a significant percentage of the electorate, including some swing voters. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. On Friday, uh, we had a good conversation with Portland State philosophy professor Peter Bogosian, who... uh, does not uh, consider himself a conservative of any sort, but he does consider himself somebody who believes in academic freedom and uh, the substantive definition of things. We spoke about the anti-racist and anti-racism movement, which has taken hold in this country. Uh, really, the scholarship, and I use that in quotation marks, of Robin DiAngelo, whose book White Fragility is Amazon number one bestseller. She's a cause celeb now, as well as uh, Ibram Kendi who uh, we talked about again with Bogosian, the uh, American University academic 
who suggests there's no such thing as not being racist. There's either racist and anti-racist. So what is an anti-racist? This was uh, Bogosian's distillation. The basic idea is all of these authors, Robin D'Angelo on, and these are not fringe authors, by the way. These are dominating the New York Times bestseller list. The idea is that everybody is intrinsically racist, and your denial of the fact that you're racist proves that you're a racist. Right. It's called the Kafka trap. You can't say, no, well, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not a racist, because that's complicity in racism, and that's your white fragility. In point of fact, D'Angelo, uh, per uh, a good review of her book by Matt Taibbi, again, man of the left, D'Angelo instructs us, there's nothing to be done here except to strive to be less white. To deny this theory or, or to have an effrontery to sneak away from the tedium of D'Angelo's lecturing, which she describes as leaving the stress-inducing situation, is to infer uh, to affirm her conception of white supremacy. Taibbi goes on to describe her writing style. The lexicon favored by intersectional theorists of this type is built around the same principles as Orwell's Newspeak. It banishes ambiguity, nuance, and feeling and structures itself around sterile word pairs like racist and anti-racist, platform and deplatform, center and silence, that reduce all thinking to a series of binary choices. And uh, this is, uh, in part, the uh, centerpiece of a new offering from John Murawski over at Real Clear Investigations, where he uh, talks about um, and distills the left Mott and Bailey technique of political sloganeering. Um, So remove it from uh, some of the uh, dystopian authors and uh, move it back into the corporate sphere in terms of understanding what some of these purveyors of demagoguery, I would argue, understand about uh, human psychology and moving human beings from one moral panic to another for a specific political purpose. For more on this, John Murawski, reporter with RealClearInvestigations.com, joins us. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So uh, just, uh, you know, again, getting definitions understood first, the Mott and Bailey technique when it comes to political sloganeering. Describe it. The Mott and Bailey technique is a really old trick, but it has a new name. And so now that it has this new name, we are noticing a lot more than we noticed it before. And basically... You make a radical claim, which is the Bailey, and I'll tell you where these terms come from in a second. And when people start questioning your claim, you fall back on an innocent and obvious and self-evident, uncontestable claim, which is the Mott, and, and you claim that they're interchangeable. An example might be that sometimes comes up is you may support affirmative hiring practices or pre- preferential hiring practices and promotions for women in the workplace to try to achieve a 50% parity with males. And when someone starts raising questions about that, you would say, well, women are human beings too, and women deserve to be treated equally. And nobody can really disagree with the fact that women are human beings. And then the person you're talking to is momentarily flustered by that because he's been put on the spot. He says, yeah, I guess women are human beings. I mean, I don't know what, you know, yeah, sure. And then they kind of, it, it interrupts the flow of the argument and it interrupts your train of thought and it gives you this momentary victory. And then the person then later realizes, I just kind of got tricked. I, 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 you know, he thinks we, I, I, I just gave in, but it's not really, we didn't really discuss the original point, but that really happens after the fact. And so that's the Mott and the Mott and Bailey. And it happens, it's very frequent, particularly in online identity politics in that kind of, in that kind of environment. It can happen really anywhere. It's not limited to any kind of political view or ideological view, but it just seems to be very common now because we can track it because what people say is in print and it's searchable. And you can find what people say and what they later say to defend themselves. And so you're finding a lot more of it. Whereas, you know, before um, you know, we were typing, we were actually having conversations. You might say one thing one day 
And then if somebody says to you, well, didn't you just say something else the other day? So no, I never really said that. And you don't have any proof I said that. And you wouldn't be able to tr- catch them in the modern Bailey. But now we're finding it all the time because people are leaving digital tracks all over the Internet of what they actually said. A prime example of this we're discussing with uh, Robin DiAngelo's book and uh, and uh, Matt Taibbi's review in particular is, uh, and as, as Professor Bogosian said, if you say you're not racist, that proves you're racist. So, so I, you know, how do I get out of this Kafka trap? And the answer is you can't. One of the central tenets of D'Angelo's book, as Taibbi uh, reminds us, is that racism cannot be eradicated. It can only be managed through lifelong vigilance. And so, right. so, so you have to bring in, as he describes them, the high-priced toxicity hunters to your corporate environment, to your school system, as, as sort of the next generation versions of efficiency ex- experts to help you fight this disease in perpetuity. Yeah, there, I mean, the position of the, the anti-racist position, which you went over in your previous program, is that racism is so baked in to European and particularly American social structures and legal structures that it is essentially part of the DNA. So that's like the core argument of the New York Times 1619 Project, right. it's the core argument of white fragility. It's the core argument of Ibram X. Kendi. Also, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, you know, these are all, uh, you know, basically various uh, incarnations of critical race theory. Uh, and so if you were to have a conversation with uh, Robin D'Angelo and you were to say, well, Robin, what you're suggesting sounds, you know, it sounds really like you're the racist, like you're saying that white people have this inherent quality that's really negative and they can best manage it like it's a chronic condition. And she says, and then she would respond, instead of responding to your claim, she might say, well, don't you believe that racism is bad? Don't you? And you would say, well, sure, I think racism is bad. And so that would be the mod, which she would fall back on a, on a statement that you, you can't disagree with. And she would then pretend that they are equivalent. With, it's equivalent with what she just said. Right. Um, and so I've never had a, the pleasure of having a conversation with Robin D'Angelo, but I can imagine that someone like her, she, that she or someone who's her defender, would fall back on that statement. And of course, there's always the Kafka trap, which you just mentioned, which is any attempt at self-defense is, is believed to be, uh, like, for example, in Title IX proceedings, the colleges, if the guy defended himself against claims of assault, sometimes he was actually slapped with an extra, uh, extra allegation of retaliation. That was actually considered a form of retaliation. So that's the Kafka trap, and it actually has legal, it's not just frustrating, it actually has legal implications when it's when it's informed, when it's institutionalized and, and formalized like that. And, and just uh, so, it, it just quickly, the, the, the history of the Mott and Bailey, um, for, so for, per yeah. its, per its uh, you know, a present day application. It comes from a medieval castle. So when the Norman French conquered England in 1066 AD, they introduced this new kind of castle that had a defense fortification called the Mott. So the Bailey was the area around the castle where you, where you got all the productive work done, which is the productive area where you had workshops, stables, uh, you had the blacksmith, you had uh, all the work was done there, but it was completely exposed to attack and defenseless. And when you have, you know, and you, when, when, when the uh, opposing um, army came in, the people in that bailey had to retreat and hide behind the moat and behind a fence. And then they climbed into this thing called the mot, which is a raised tower. And they would shoot arrows uh, at the uh, encroaching uh, um, attackers from this mot. So the mot has no value except as a defensive position, but you can't do anything there. You can't shot a horse or you can't, 
you know, you can't grind grain up there or you can't bake bread up there. You can't do anything up there. You can't make textiles. It's just a defensive thing. And as soon as the attackers go away, you go back out to the Bailey, which is the productive area. So in, in an ideological warfare, the Bailey is, has political productivity. You can get score political points, uh, but it's, it's open to attack because it is, it is tough, hard to defend because your claims are difficult to defend. So you retreat to the Mott and you, and from the Mott, you can basically throw out slogans, which are self-evidently true. And the slogans could be like Black Lives Matter or Make America Great Again. These are slogans that are on their, on the face, on their own, on, the, on, the, on their face, are, seem like self-evidently true slogans. And then when your attacker retreats, you can go back to the Bailey and make radical claims. You know, the radical claims could be whatever political agenda is involved in those slogans, which, so- you know, which... which you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so we have uh, William the Conqueror to thank for uh, the Mott and Bailey uh, t- t- from 1066 to uh, 2020, yeah. uh, as, you know, turning what was a physical weapon into an uh, intellectual one. It's, 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 it's really interesting. It's fascinating. Uh, he is John Morales. It's, it's very common. It's a very common thing, and it sounds yeah. almost stupid when you have it described. Like, who could fall for that? But it, is, it, is, it, is, it can be very subtle. And people fall for it all the time. I think we're seeing that play out in real time. No question about it. Uh, John Morawski, reporter with RealClearInvestigations.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, take care. Listen to podcasts of the show at DanProfShow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. New York Times story over the weekend that whipped the D.C. press corps into a lather. Spies and commandos warned months ago of Russian bounties on U.S. troops. The uh, report is that U.S. intel officers and special ops forces in Afghanistan alerted their superiors as early as January to a suspected Russian plot to pay bounties to the Taliban. Russian plot to pay bounties to the Taliban to kill American troops in Afghanistan. The reason this is a a story that is being pushed is because the criticism here is that Trump didn't respond to this Russian effort. And, uh, of course, the implicit insinuation is, you know, because he's a pawn of Putin. They don't don't believe that they have disbanded their effort to advance the Russian collusion narrative in spite of the three years of abject failure and the failure to produce any evidence with all of the evidence mounting on the other side of the case. So they'll continue to take opportunities that they can manufacture like this one. For uh, more context to this story and a few others, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of Wiki at War, as well as Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So what about this uh, report about intel officers uncovering a plot by the Russians to pay the Taliban to kill American troops? Yeah, right. And, you know, I don't have access to any classified information. So I I just know what everybody else knows. So here's what we do know. Has the GRU, the Russians, done despicable acts like this? We're actually killing people or putting out bounties that people killed. The answer is absolutely. Is there an enormous amount of disinformation going on in Afghanistan? 
including disinformation spread by the Russians, where you could actually have a disinformation campaign that says, hey, we're doing this, but they're not actually doing it, which is not out of the realm either. But I think the third thing, as you pointed out, is we have seen the story so many times before. Any paste newspaper goes and gets some version of something from somebody that's unnamed. They print that as if it's the absolute God-spoken truth. We immediately find out that, oh, well, some of these things we know are factually incorrect, like the president being briefed on this. And yet we've created a narrative that which everybody runs with. And I guess I'm just skeptical because this is kind of the president's phone call with the Ukrainians kind of deluxe, right? It's the same narrative once again. It follows the same pattern. I think we'll just see more of this running up to the election because this is just how these media outlets are operating. Can you refresh our collective recollections of what the president has done vis-a-vis Russia in the last three years? Would you characterize him as being particularly soft on Russia or has he been particularly aggressive with respect to Russia and their anti-American activities? You know, in his public diplomacy, the president has often kind of said, we should try to communicate with the Russians, which I would point out, by the way, is what every single European leader says, including Macron, who right now is organizing meeting with the Russians. Everybody says we should talk to the Russians. Right? But behind the president's public diplomacy, which he does in spite of all the criticism that he gets, he, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to try to be a diplomat. He could just ignore the Russians and give people one less thing to criticism. But he takes those shots because it's part of Americans' comprehensive approach to dealing with Russia. But on the other hand, we are dead set against Nord Stream 2, which is the number one energy project the Russians want in Europe. It is literally their golden ticket into Europe, and we have opposed that at every turn. We have strengthened NATO. We've got NATO to put another $100 billion into the defense of NATO, which the Russians hate. We have supported Russian sanctions from the Ukraine, which continue to this day. We have limited what the Russians have been able to accomplish in Syria. We have protested what the Russians are doing in Libya. We have harmed the Ukrainian, which is the one thing the Russians didn't want us to do. So we have supported Georgia, which is a country that's having issues with the Russians. So it's very, very difficult to find, in an operational perspective, one area where we have actually given it to the Russians. Speaking of the men and women in uniform in U.S. military, just as a quick COVID-19 aside, one of the things that we talk about during the pandemic is, you know, you can't have a strong health care system if you don't have a strong economy. Well, you can't have a strong military for long if you don't have a strong economy either, or at least not unless you do the military to the exclusion of everything else like a despot would. And so uh, are you concerned at all about our economic vitality, not just as a God-fearing American, but also vis-a-vis our ability to maintain the readiness of our military? I am. You know, I've said this a lot. We're in an age of great power competition. We have people out there that are trying to mess with us. I think the most important thing right now is to get the American economy up and running. It's not just important for the lives and livelihood of 330 million Americans. It's important for our ability to compete in the world. So, yeah, I think that getting the economy up and running is literally job one. And and we all acknowledge that we have to do that in a way that is safe and deals with the public health challenges for defense as, as well as everything else. We can't build things. We can't recruit people. We can't train people, let alone everything else. So, yeah, getting the country up and running again, that is literally the most important national security concern in the world right now. 
I heard some scuttlebutt wanted to get your reaction to about uh, moving uh, Pacific Fleet subs to the South China Sea, like a, a real move of more presence there. And I, I wondered if you had heard anything about that and if that indicates anything about uh, escalating tensions between America and the Chinese. Well, I think the competition in the South China Sea is definitely escalating. I think one of the clearest examples of that that we have seen is not just the United States, but other countries pushing back now. So I think we're, you know, I think everything's on the table. The thing about subs, though, is geography matters. I mean, what, what, the, uh, what the water looks like, you know, the ability to operate there, what the utility of subs are, that's, you know, that's something that you really have to take into account. But yeah, there's no question that, that we're going to see a lot more focus on the South China Sea competition. Uh, just because of uh, John Bolton's book that we uh, spoke about uh, a little bit last week, um, I wanted to get your sort of uh, progress report three years in and, uh, you know, five months from an election. Uh, John Bolton argues that uh, America is uh, less safe, that our national security is is less robust be, because of President Trump's uh, decisions. What, what would you say about President Trump in terms of the national security position uh, America is in our, our uh, standing in the world? Well, you know, objectively, what I do is I look at the pacing threats. You know, we just we already talked about Russia. Russia has really not had any significant strategic advances since Trump came into office. China's been challenged in a way that no president's done uh, in the last three decades. So, I mean, I, I think that's unprecedented. Iran's in the worst shape it's ever been, and its power and influence in the region has never been under more pressure. Um, North Korea, you know, regardless of the fact that the diplomatic talks aren't making much progress, is as checkmated as ever. So I think if you look at the pacing threats in the world today, we're in much better shape than we were three years ago. And that's not even people forget, you know, four years ago, the number one thing on the everybody's concern was Islamic transnational Islamic terrorism and, and, and ISIS essentially having a, a caliphate the size of a country. And of course, that threat is incredibly diminished. So by any objective standard, I think the U.S. is in a stronger strategic position than we are today, despite COVID, despite, you know, elbowing with allies, despite, you know, bumpy enemies. And we were through and I think that's just objectively true. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, always appreciate your insights. Thank you. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Oh, yeah, it's somebody's special day today. It's the 219th birthday of Frederick Bastiat, of course. Have you read the law? If you haven't, you should. Uh, you should familiarize yourself with Frederick Bastiat. Uh, you should familiarize your children with him too. I doubt you're going to get your children are going to get familiarized with him in the uh, Maoist school systems that are being uh, reimagined at present. Uh, Bastiat uh, has some ideas that were supposed to be parodies, uh, which probably will be actually uh, presented in legislative form by House Democrats before the year's out. For example, to counteract job losses. Right. And we have we have 21 million people unemployed. Forbid all loyal subjects to use their right hands. 
as soon as all the right hands are either cut off or tied down, things will change 20 times, 30 times as many embroiderers, pressers, and ironers, seamstresses, dressmakers, and shirt makers will not suffice to meet the national demand. Can you imagine such bustling about, such activity, such animation? Each dress will busy 100 fingers instead of 10. No young woman will any longer be idle. Not, uh, not only will more young women be employed, but each of them will earn more for all of them together will be unable to satisfy the demand. Hooray! Isn't that what we do in part today when we talk about jobs? I mean, it's remarkable. This is parody. We're being parodied 200 years later. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is somebody who um, uh, understood the results of the French Revolution since we're in Jacobin times here. Uh, I cite this often, uh, this uh, observation from Bastiat, when we talk about uh, government intrusions into the marketplace, be it in the form of tariffs or benefits, subsidies, uh, taxation, whatnot, other other forms of taxation, government-run schools, guaranteed jobs, guaranteed profits, minimum wages, all of those intercessions by the government. Treat all economic questions from the viewpoint of the consumer. For the interests of the consumer are the interests of the human race. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's what every policymaker should understand. If you don't understand that, you understand nothing about economics. A man who does understand something about economics is Christopher Whalen. I don't know if it's his birthday, but we'll, sell, we'll sing it to him. Happy birthday to him when it is. He's an investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, LLC, author of Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise, as well as Inflated, How Money and, Delt, and Debt excuse me, Built the American Dream. He's also editor for the Institutional Risk Analysis. Christopher, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, greetings from New York. Yes, yeah, so you sound very excited to be there. Um, uh, well, yeah, we just had a three-alarm fire. Oh. Uh, I was thinking, by the way, during your discussion of Bastiat, I once got to hear Robert Novak describe why Bastiat was Ronald Reagan's favorite economist. Mm. And it's, it's one of my dear memories of Bob, who was an old family friend. Uh, and a University of Illinois grad, sure, one of our very own here. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, so uh, to talk a little bit about where you think we are in terms of this uh, inching down the road of recovery, are, are we even inching? No, we're still in the kind of the early phases of the shock, which is trying to understand uh, what's happening in different industries in different parts of the country. Um, we are not even near the cleanup phase yet, and I think people will be a little shocked and surprised by the losses that are anticipated by U.S. banks when they release their earnings in the second uh, quarter. You know, we're already up to the amount of cash put aside in 2009 for the whole year. And so, and uh, sorry to interrupt, but but just to weave in this, is that why uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell did what he did with bank dividends and uh, stock yes. repurchases? Yes, Ex- we did a little. We did a little comment on that this morning in the blog, and so he he is evolving his thinking. Back in April, he and I frankly said, "Look, the banks will stop buying back stock, which was worth over 130 billion dollars a year, and that should be enough." But now. Certain banks, particularly uh, Wells, Fargo, probably Capital One, because they have a lot of consumer exposure, are looking at this again. And they're thinking maybe we need to retain earnings and just build a big pile of capital. And I think that's what you're going to see. I think all the banks are going to be in that posture, 
Chase, for example, is gently backing away from a lot of institutional markets, particularly uh, residential mortgages. Uh, they did this, by the way, 10 years ago. So we're replaying that movie. And all the big banks are adjusting risk, but this time it's about commercial real estate. It's about business defaults. It's not about residential mortgages. That's the big difference. When we come back with Chris Whalen, I want to inquire as to whether or not it's true that we didn't have a financial crisis before the pandemic, but we have worked our way into one as a response to the pandemic. More with Chris Whalen on the return. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show we're back with chris whalen and let's talk about the potential that we are working our way into a financial crisis pre-pandemic we uh, had a banking system that was relatively strong but now we Maybe working our way into a, a banking crisis, and that's what you see in terms of concern from Jerome Powell at the Fed. Is that fair? I wouldn't call it a crisis because crisis implies surprise. That's the definition of a systemic event is when you surprise everybody with risk that they did not see. Here, I think we're pretty forewarned. The street doesn't want to hear it, which is a different matter. That's a matter of you know collective delusion. Uh, and stocks, by the way, are still pretty, pretty well valued. So the world doesn't want to believe we're facing something that's a little more like the 1930s, the mid-1930s, than it is like 2009. And the economists don't want to hear that either. Uh, do you, so uh, when you talk, uh, uh, when you see, I should say, proposals coming out of Trump's circle of economic advisors like a uh, payroll tax holiday, that is not uh, substantial enough to meet the moment in your estimation? Well, it certainly helps. Anything you can do to feed cash in the front of the beast, if you will, is great. We can protect jobs for a while. We can extend unemployment benefits and all that, which is very important. But what I'm saying is that there are simply a lot of businesses that are not going to work because the change of the utilization of big cities, the change in travel patterns and volumes. You know, I'll give you an example. There's no tourists in New York now. Mm-hmm. The, the character of this city has changed fundamentally in the density. If you look at the ridership on the MTA, I could see them shutting down the trains eventually in New York because there simply won't be enough volume to justify keeping them up, and we'll just run buses. Seriously. Well, I mean, to your point, and we talked about this a little bit last week, and I think it was the Wall Street Journal that reported on it, you already seeing a flight from density to less density in urban centers, yeah. even even within the oh even within the urban center. But <laughs> even if you're staying in, in, in Chicago or New York, you're moving to less dense areas. And then a lot yeah. of people are moving out to the suburbs and exurbs. That's happening right now. Well, yes, close in Connecticut, which was left for dead, like people were renting their homes because it was hopeless to try and sell them. Now, suddenly life has been breathed back into that market. Even suburban New York, where we are facing higher taxes, a lot of reason for people to move out of New York City is simply that the city is going to have to raise taxes and cut services. That is going to be a tough proposition in this town. So I think we have to think much like our ancestors did in the 30s, not just about feeding cash in the front to provide short-term support, but about how we restructure an economy. 
Um, and, you know, in those days, they created a parastatal agency that was funded in the debt markets. It was run, uh, it was called the Reconstruction Finance Corp. And they basically restructured dead companies and dead banks that couldn't qualify for FDIC insurance. You created the FDIC in 1933, remember. It was a very important period because before that, dead banks were a state matter. And that didn't work. I want to go back to something you said. You uh, cited uh, commercial real estate magnate uh, Sam Zell. Yeah. Um, he he uh, talking about how uh, many real estate assets, many businesses are just not going to work. And, and that's what you're describing in terms of the months ahead where you'll see business closures. But he also said uh, we will recover. Indeed, we are already recovering. Is he speaking of just himself and his uh, enterprises or is he speaking more generally about commercial real estate? No, I think Mr. Zell is speaking about commercial real estate, and I, I agree with him because the, the commercial world is an entirely professional institutional market. There are no consumers there, back to your comment about consumer politics, right? So you don't have that risk, and you can also move things along. And so when both sides, you know, the creditors and the debtors sit at the table and they have a pool of real estate assets that have been financed, right? The conversation very quickly cuts to the chase, which is you wipe out the equity and some of the, if not all of the debt, becomes the new owners of the assets. And you go out and you get some more financing, more mortgage debt, obviously at a lower valuation than before. And you get on with it. You, you, you buy time, essentially. And that's what I was describing about the 1930s. You know, for example, when we created the 30-year mortgage in the 1930s. That was to buy time. Buy time for the so, restructuring yeah. underneath it. Yeah. yeah. Nobody financed a house for 30 years. They, my grandmother had a 10-year bullet, and she lost her house because they couldn't refinance it. Mm. Okay? That was very common. And you know what? Nobody wanted to take the risk on a house. There was no government market. So, you know, the government has done some important things in finance, essentially subsidizing everybody's ownership of a home, which is not a bad thing. Um, but there are other areas where, unfortunately, you know, all the commercial assets are private. There are some that are guaranteed multifamily apartment buildings, particularly by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they're very good, by the way. Those securities have performed fine. But a lot of the private stuff has got to be fixed. Malls, okay? A lot of malls. Um, they're going to have to be repurposed. No, no question about it, even if people move back to the suburbs to some degree. What about, uh, uh, what, give us your perspective on the residential home market, not just in urban oh, centers, but, yeah. but, but because, I mean, you're talking about if people are going to be out of work a lot longer than they thought, if, uh, mm -hmm. if you're going to see home values plummet as more supply becomes available. No, no look, the, think of the market up to six, $700,000 value, which is kind of the top of the agency market mm -hmm. for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? The FHA is a little lower, and they're mostly for first-time home buyers, people who are getting started, much smaller loans in that market. They're fine. That, that market, really up to the conforming limit in most cities, is, is robust right now. And that's partly because there isn't a lot of supply, right. particularly of newer homes, which people tend to want. You know. But the, the top stuff, stuff over a million dollars, getting up into that stratosphere, is going to be compressed quite a lot. So, you know, there'll be some ebb and flow on a regional basis. But the problem that we face is that the Fed, by coming in so heavy in 2009, 2010 with liquidity, essentially created this bull market in real estate. And we have seen tremendous price appreciation in commercial assets, land. In fact, default for several years had no cost 
because the value of the property was going up so fast you couldn't lose money. Think about that. So now we're going to see compression the other way, and particularly in the high-end assets. The middle and the lower, uh, you know, two, dollars $300,000 homes, no, because there aren't enough of them. We still have a deficit in affordable housing. And by the way, we're going to do record volumes in residential lending this year because of low interest rates. Yeah, right. Okay. $2.5 trillion in mortgages this year. This will be the most profitable year for mortgage bankers in 10 years. Oh, I'm sure. And it will, sure. People it will, will help be very happy bank. to hear that. Yeah. He is Christopher Whalen, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, LLC. Christopher, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Be well. Insights. Happy holiday. Take care. I just can't help the feeling of living a life of illusion. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, this from uh, the Wall Street Journal's notable and quotable section, in case you missed it. Tom Lydon reporting for KMSP TV in Minneapolis over the weekend. Uh, local reporter there. The city of Minneapolis is spending $4,500 a day for private security for three city council members who have received threats following the police killing of George Floyd. Fox 9 has learned the three city council members who have the security detail have been outspoken proponents of defunding the Minneapolis Police Department. Asked why Minneapolis police are not providing security services to the three council members, a city spokesman said, Minneapolis Police Department resources are needed in the community. Oh, the layers of rich irony. Three city council members want to defund the police. They uh, receive threats. So taxpayers are providing $4,500 a day for in private security for the individuals. Why not have Minneapolis police do it? Because Minneapolis police resources are needed in the community to protect the community. So I'm sorry. <laughs> what what exactly is the plan here? What what is the vision of policing in Minneapolis from the city council members being whose private security is being financed? Is that similar to uh, what Minneapolis residents are getting? Uh, they are getting privately financed security. The Minneapolis Police Department is providing ostensibly. Um, is, is doing its best to protect and serve Minneapolis residents while the city council is trying to defund it. Now, we can't spend money from this police department to fund police department security for the council members because we need it for the police's job of protecting the community, even though we want to defund that police. Whew, head spinning. Andy McCarthy uh, over at National Review had a couple of observations, too about the general defamation of police as institutionally racist. Um, that uh, this is uh, opening potentially an unbridgeable chasm abetted by two national character flaws. The first, our gravitation to political leaders capable only of making matters worse by their spitefulness and Manichaean posturing. The second, our increasingly manifest conviction we're not worth defending. We seem convinced there is no positive case to be made for a society that idealizes liberty and the equal dignity of every person. For a society that does not pretend to be perfect, but that strives to be better. 
Yeah, I, I agree with uh, both points McCarthy raises and that second point that we're not even worth defending. We're not worth defending. It's not worth defending my business, my property, my livelihood, my children's education. I will just uh, lay supine while you roll over me. People are saying to the mob, remarkable. Not that couple in St. Louis defending their home, uh, you know, guns drawn. But uh, for many others, what Andy McCarthy is saying is exactly true. And it is a woeful state of affairs. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Tony Fauci had a... Uh... Extended message to the nation on Friday at the the first uh, presidential coronavirus uh, coronavirus task force uh, confab in in some time. Uh, Fauci not assigning blame, but just trying to provide a a summary of the landscape as he sees it and what uh, best practices are going forward. But the citizenry did not feel that they wanted to do that for a number of reasons, likely because everyone feels the common feeling of being pent up for such a long period of time. So we're not going to say blame. We're not going to try and analyze it. But there is something that's very important about it that I'd like to get a message to the country in general. When you have an outbreak of an infectious disease, it's a dynamic process that is global. So remember, what happened in China affected us. What happened in Europe affected us. What's happening here is affecting others. We can't get away from that. It's interconnected. So therefore, if we are an interconnected society, we've got to look at the fact of what our role is in trying to put an end to this. Because everybody wants to end it. Everybody wants to get back to normal. And everybody wants the economy to recover. I think we all are pretty common in that. Yeah, uh, we all, well, for the most part, I'll concede we're all pretty common in that. Although there's some that seem to be rather delighting uh, uh, rather curiously at the prospect of a lack of recovery, at the prospect of more lockdowns or a halt in the reopening. It's um, it's odd to see people, particularly in the media uh, and uh, certain political stripes, rooting against particular states or trying to mischaracterize what's happening in those states. The Wall Street Journal opining over the weekend, even with the latest outbreaks, the U.S. has recorded fewer deaths per 100,000 than the U.K., Spain, Italy, France. Death rates are a lagging indicator, but Arizona, Florida, and Texas still well well below Europe. New York, which has opened up last and slowly, has a death rate of 161 per 100,000, but also, uh, I will add, uh, notably, uh, less than 1% infection rate as of present. Still, Arizona's uh, deaths per 100,000 uh, 21, Florida, 15, Texas, 8, New York, 161. Uh, so, uh, yes, there have been a increase in cases and particularly so in certain pockets. But um, that is a statistic that needs context or that is a data point that needs context. And uh, there isn't a lot of context coming 
from the blaring headlines in the New York Times or the Chirons on CNN. And golly, one wonders why. For example, the Texas Daily Death Count, uh, this is from Heather McDonald, looking at the numbers, bounced around since early May without a sharp rise. A high of 63 new deaths on May 21st, 42 on June 24th. Arizona, another state facing media contempt, finally beat its earlier high of 67 deaths on May 8th with 79 on June 24th. But between those two two dates, however, the curve was steady. In Georgia, what happened to Brian Kemp? I thought he was also a target of opprobrium. Uh, The media have gone silent on him and Georgia because uh, Georgia went from a daily death toll high of 119 on April 7th, long before the reopenings, to 10 as of last week on June 24th. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Dr. John Bao, who is an emergency room doctor and the chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. Bao, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Dan. Uh, what about um, the uh, characterization and the um, renewed interest in whipping up hysteria over the uh, increase in cases that was uh, that that was reported preemptively? We will see an increase in cases when we reopen because there'll be more social interactions. There'll be more human activity. So you're likely to see an increase in cases. That's what we're seeing. And yet we're getting the apocalyptic predictions again. You know, that's that's a very interesting point that we look at. And one of the things that I actually heard um, uh, just uh, this morning as I was driving home from the from the hospital last night was, well, you know, we're we're looking at a second wave. But uh, the truth is what we're seeing is what we had known and we were hoping to do. And that's that's the prolongation of the first wave. So so this really still just is sort of the first wave. Just some states got it later. I know that uh, I live and practice and work in Utah. And uh, our um, our overall numbers have been quite low, and we've we've pushed out that uh, that curve quite quite um, uh, far down the road. When we initially closed, I don't know that we really needed to. Our numbers weren't uh, anywhere near what they were back east or or uh, farther west on the coast. But yet we closed down just like the rest of the country did, and then we started opening up again, and we see that our numbers have increased. But those numbers are not insurmountable and our death rate as you were talking about before i came on um uh, are are not anything like we were seeing in some of the high densely populated areas of new york new jersey or even seattle and san francisco but instead what we're seeing is what we would expect from um a, a, a viral disease that has known adverse outcomes this is a big deal i don't want to downplay that we know that this is a a, a bad disease and there's a lot of secondary care, uh, secondary symptoms that come along, and we and it has a higher death rate than some of the other things that are out there. But we've done all the things that we should have done, and so now we're we're seeing what we know that we should see, and that is diseases or disease later in the process. Yeah, and and it's just the the, the thing that's so frustrating is pretending to not know the premises we started from, which was we were never going to stop the spread. It was about slow the spread to keep it tracking with the healthcare infrastructure's capacity to deal with projected hospitalizations and so forth. And so so we we did that largely. The spread is increasing. Yeah, maybe there's been some things that uh, have increased it more rapidly than it would have increased between uh, just social activities and protests and other events. Okay, fine. 
But I mean, for goodness sakes, the 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 lack of any context to the increase in cases, both in terms of what what's the the median age we know in Florida, the median age of the infected has dropped 30 years. You're getting you're infecting younger people generally, at least at present. And so there's a much more um, a much greater likelihood of not one uh, survival. Number two, not even serious illness, not even requiring hospitalization. All this context is lost in the conversation. All the premises we started from have been erased and we're starting from new premises like the belief that sans a vaccine that everybody wants to take we were going to eliminate the existence of COVID-19. Right. You know, um, this really kind of goes back to what I've been sort of preaching from the beginning, and that is a a global answer is not the answer, right? We have to look at every region and and geographical area, and we have to say, well, what is our um, capability? What is our capacity? What is is the disease doing in that area? I do think we see um, regional and geographic differences in the way that disease reacts. And, and we also look at um, uh, the differences in the in the population and not just the density, but um, uh, the, the sort of overall health of those individual populations in those geographic regions. And then we make wise and smart decisions based upon geography. And then we, we test individuals and those who are sick, um, then they get quarantined. They get isolated. They they get protected both for them and for others. But then, you know, we monitor them all. We, we, we do those things that are beneficial and helpful, and we keep other individuals out. We keep them working. We keep them um, going to the, the store. We keep them going to the theater and we're going to restaurants. That way we keep our economy moving, and yet we take care of those who are sick and those who have potential of getting others sick. We, uh, we have that potential to keep them separate without shutting things down. And, and that's kind of what I've been preaching for, for a long time about that individual testing, um, a regional um, uh, um, direction and um, individual monitoring and, and uh, not shutting down whole um, cities or states or regions or countries. Again, we, we, we just can't do that. I think that that was a, um, a big decision at a time when we didn't know what we should do. We just knew that something was happening and it was this new, new phenomenon. But now we know more and we know how to be able to treat it. We we talk about treatment options. Now we we have some good treatment options. um, uh, Dexamethasone, Decadron, a common steroid that's very, very cheap, is showing an actual decrease in mortality in the very sickest and the moderately sick. And it's showing improved outcomes in, in the less sick. Um, And it's very cheap and it's available. And and so, so we have these additional options that are out there that we've learned through the process thus far. So I think we just don't have to have the same draconian efforts that we had initially. When, when we come back with uh, Dr. John Bow, I want to pick up our discussion and get your reaction to a statement coming from the American Academy of Pediatrics on uh, school attendance in the fall, as well as uh, the uh, continuing controversy over mask mandates. More with Dr. John Bow, emergency room doctor and chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions right after this. Profshow.com. Welcome back at uh, Friday's Coronavirus Task Force Briefing. Vice President Pence uh, tackled a couple of other questions 
in addition to what uh, Fauci and Burks had to say on the uh, science, uh, on the politics and the policy more so, Mike Pence on uh, mask mandates at the uh, state and or local level. Your local officials in consultation with the state uh, are directing you to wear a mask. We encourage uh, everyone to wear a mask uh, in the affected areas. Pence also uh, tackled a couple of different efforts to uh, try to get him to apologize for having re-election rallies. Uh, Mike Pence responding to the question about uh, the propriety of having rallies with the uh, spike in cases. Well, I want to remind you again that the freedom of speech and the right to peaceably assemble is enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. Uh, And even in a health crisis, the American people don't forfeit our constitutional rights. Questions that were not asked of uh, anybody associated with uh, local officials presiding over protests, uh, uh, event in Chicago this weekend that drew hundreds, if not thousands of people for you know Pride Month, a pride event on the north side of Chicago. No questions of local or state officials about that. But, uh, of course, Trump rallies are verboten for uh, more on this topic, particularly of masks. Uh, back with uh, Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor and the chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Uh, Dr. Bao, um, on, on the masks, you, you know, I, I spoke with um, Louis Ignaro, who's a Nobel Prize uh, laureate, a Nobel laureate, Nobel Prize winner in the area of physiology about breathing and how breathe through your nose and exhale through your mouth and how nitric ox, uh, acid works in your nose to make you healthier and so on and so forth on Friday. And he said, uh, he just said something interesting. He said, uh, science is about 10% science and 90% common sense. Uh, okay. Um, so it's imprecise, it's imprecise and it's never settled, but, um, with the common sense, uh, you know, I, I'm not ideological about masks, but I have a problem when there's a lack of admission about uh, the science. And there was a good uh, summary of a number of studies, randomized control trial studies and meta-analysis review of randomized control trial studies of masks at rcreader.com that goes back about 10 years. And in all of these studies, um, there is no establishment of a conclusive relationship between mask and respirator use and protection against influenza infection, infection or other respiratory illnesses, effectively. And so the um, the zeitgeist behind mask wearing and mask mandates, as you hear Nancy Pelosi last week calling for a national mask requirement. You know, it's it's interesting that that comment about ten uh, percent science and ninety percent uh, common sense. That's that's one of the things that I try to teach people all the time. I, you know, I work every day in the emergency department. I work with sick people, and you know, maybe they've got pneumonia, maybe they've got a heart, they're having a heart attack, maybe they're having a stroke, maybe they've got COVID-19. And I use the same basic principles with every single one of my patients. Uh, on those who are sick, um, this is you know before COVID, those who are sick, I wore a mask. When, if I was um, uh, sick, then I would wear a mask, um, and I wash my hands into and out of every single room um, with hand sanitizer or with soap and water. And, uh, and so I've, I've tried to teach people the same principles apply here. You know, when, when we are sick and others are sick, we should be wearing a mask because we know that it does stop the spread of those small um, uh, airborne particles uh, to some extent. The better the mask, then the, the better it traps. You know, the N95, they trap uh, smaller particles. But we've also known, and before I worked in the emergency department, uh, I worked in the operating room for a long time, 
and uh, and we knew back then, you know, 20 years ago, that uh, the the masks that we wore um, uh, weren't really stopping that much. You know, you cough and you sneeze, and, and you can see those airborne particles go out the side of those surgical masks. And so, so I think that it's very smart to be able to look at it in a common sense sort of way. We do things that make sense, um, um, but I'm I'm a big um, proponent of conservative principles, and that means that we still have to keep in mind we don't want to lose our independence and our ability to make those decisions regulated by a government institution, um, but we do need to be mindful of those who are more susceptible, and we need to be mindful of those who are weaker and less capable, and so we, we do need to protect those who are around us, and, but they also need to protect themselves as well. And so when it comes down to a mandate, that's that's where I start saying, well, if if you're a, a private organization, if you're a restaurant, and you say, hey, listen, you know, or, or you're a you're a movie theater, and you say, listen, when you when you come into our restaurant, or or your your Costco, and you say, well, when you come into Costco, you need to wear a mask. Well, that's fine. That's that's their right. They're a, they're a, a private entity. Sure. As a, as a public institution, I think it's a little bit different. And you know, I have a friend that lives up in Tacoma, Washington, and now Washington has this mandated. A mask if you're outside um, in any sort of public scenario, and, and that includes being on your own property um, outside your home, and uh, and and they have a a, a pretty significant fine uh, for not wearing a mask, and and I think that that is not the way that we go about instituting good principles and practices. Instead, it's education and common sense and, and teaching individuals. I, I hear what you're saying about the balance, and, and I appreciate that. But but I, I hate to concede uh, things that are just not verified. And, and again, looking at all of these uh, studies, the conclusion is that there is no randomized control trial study with verified outcome that shows a benefit for healthcare workers or community members in households to wearing a mask or respirator. No such study, no exceptions. Now, so you can may say, well, it, it hasn't been proven in a randomized controlled uh, trial study uh, or the meta-analysis of such studies, but it's still, let's just err on the side out of an abundance of caution. Okay, if you want to say that, that's fine. But, I mean, don't we have to concede the uh, and, and point out the underlying science or the lack thereof behind the policy? No, I, I agree 100% with you, actually. And, uh, and I think that uh, that is the principle that people should take away from that is the fact that um, uh, there seems to be some common sense behind it, um, uh, but we don't have good data, and that's why it really went back and forth at the beginning of this. Like, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear a respirator, don't wear a respirator. It's only for healthcare workers. It's not for you. And then everybody needs to wear a mask, and then it's been back, and now it's moving back forward again. And so there's not great data behind it. There's not. Um, uh, where I think that there's a lot of individuals, um, both within the healthcare industry and without, that are that are trying hard to make good decisions for themselves and for others. Um, uh, and some of that is saying, well, it seems like it should help, but we don't have good data behind it. And so let's, the, the way that I view that is instead we should come together and say, hey, you know, we don't have good data. Um, uh, what are the things that make sense to us? And can we get good data along the way? And and when and in that process, what are what are some things that we think that can help? And let's come together with common goals and common ideas. The the man, mandating, to me, um, uh, is concerning as a as a small government conservative guy. The mandation of something like that is is concerning to me, 
and not even just as a healthcare individual, but as a, as a citizen of America, thinking about um, my individual rights of me and my kids and my family, my parents, my neighbors. Um, what are we doing to be able to ensure that now and moving forward and in the future, we continue to have our rights um, that are not trampled on by big government? He is Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor, the chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. John Bao, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. George Will has a uh, very good column in the Washington Post over the weekend about uh, America's intelligentsia, such as this, lumpen intelligentsia, according to George Will, uh, properly invoking uh, a Marxist term to describe it. A nation's gravest problems are those it cannot discuss because it dare not state them. This nation's principal problem, which makes other serious problems intractable, is that much of today's intelligentsia is not intelligent. The political class is terrified of its constituents. And so it doesn't, uh, uh, George Will argues, doesn't work to temper the mob. It works to endorse them. Today's most serious problem, he writes, which annihilates thoughtfulness about all others, is that a significant portion of the intelligentsia cannot think. Our thinking class is incapable of thought. That's a problem. An admirable intelligentsia, Will continues, inoculated by education's, uh, education against fashions and fads would make thoughtful distinctions arising from historically informed empathy. It would be society's ballast against mob mentality. Instead, much of America's intelligentsia has become a mob. The barbarians are not at America's gate, Will concludes. There is no gate. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Ted Rawl. He's a syndicated political cartoonist and columnist, author of To Afghanistan and Back, as well as the just-released Political Suicide, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Is uh, George Will right? We have an intelligence, intelligentsia that's not particularly intelligent, a thinking class that uh, can't think? I suspect that we don't really have an intelligentsia or a thinking class at all. And I also suspect that although his critique is probably directed more at the left than the right, that this is a critique that sort of is almost um, bipartisan or nonpartisan. And I tend to agree with it. I mean, this is not a country that um, has a European intellectual tradition of, uh, of, of, of putting ideas and thoughts over team politics. You know, in this country, we uh, we say that Democrats are basically liberals and Republicans are basically conservatives. And if you're liberal, you must vote Democratic. And conversely, if you're conservative, you must vote Republican, even when both of those parties betray those principles that they claim to stand for. And you end up in sort of a rah-rah mode where uh, Republicans are reflexively support President Trump and Democrats are reflexively supporting Joe Biden. But there's it's not about ideas. It's about teams. It's about personalities. And uh, in a society that's not about ideas, 
you're not going to be able to move forward in an intelligent way, which I think is what Will is correctly getting at. Yeah, and there's always going to be this problem of of politicians uh, acting expediently rather than uh, a basis in principle or ethic ethically, um, and which is you know sort of an argument for term limits among other arguments. But but I mean, if you look at the cultural and civic institutions that endure that do form the character of a nation, so from pre-K through post-secondary education your arts and entertainment, uh, sports included in there, um, your legal community, your business community, both big and small. Uh, I mean, most of those institutions, if you will, since we're talking about things that are systemic, um, I mean, they're controlled by the left. So, I mean, I, 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 I do think there needs to be a recognition, and I, I, I don't exclude Republicans or conservatives from fault here in terms of his indictment of the intelligentsia. But, but there does need to be a recognition if you're going to talk about systems that aren't producing what they advertise they will produce. Well, who's in charge of those systems? Well, I guess I could I could nitpick and say that I don't think big business is really controlled by the left. Well, kind of, well, well. But, yeah. but I think, but you know, um, you know, you, my uh, my latest book kind of teases out something that is uh, sort of the big, my broader point here, which is that there's a distinction between the Marxist left, uh, socialists, communists, uh, left libertarians, anarchists, and sort of Democrats slash liberals, and they're just not the same, even though. They have often been uncomfortable partners. And you can, you know, if you don't understand that, you can sort of look at the split between the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton wings of the Democratic Party. Um, They really don't have a lot in common, any more than the Democrats and the Republicans have in common. Um, So let's just say we're talking about liberals. And there's a lot of Mm -hmm. hypocrisy on the part of liberals. Um, There's a lot of of uh, ideological inconsistencies that don't make a lot of sense. For example, let's let's just um, let, let's just hold right there because I want to pick that conversation up on the other side of the break. So the uh, the hypocrisies of, of liberals, not leftists, but liberals, and I agree with you. There's a distinction to be made there. We're speaking with Ted Rawls, syndicated political cartoonist and columnist, author of Two Afghanistan and Back, as well as the just released Political Suicide: The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. More with Ted Rawls right after. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Ted Rawl. He's a syndicated political cartoonist and columnist, author of Two Afghanistan and Back, as well as the just-released Political Suicide, the Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. And, Ted, before the break, you were about to make uh, a point about uh, liberals and, uh, per your latest book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, some of the hypocrisy that liberals need to confront if there is going to be, as you've written recently, uh, a culture of atonement and intellectual consistency, I suppose. Well, yes, for example, liberals sort of they'd like to have a reputation for anti-interventionism in foreign policy. But, for example, in the current race, the left is really the Donald Trump side of the ticket over the Joe Biden part of the ticket. You know, uh, Trump has expressed interest in in some sort of detente with North Korea, possibly Iran. He's willing to talk to anybody, he says. 
He's um, made some positive moves on the, on the crisis in Venezuela. These are all things that would fit more neatly into what would be a traditional Democratic Party slash left narrative than Joe Biden, who recently said some pretty appalling things about Venezuela and has been saber rattling with Iran and China, as did uh, Hillary Clinton in the last cycle. Um, you know, that's just not really a lot of Democratic voters are turning a blind eye to that kind of inconsistency uh, or the fact that even on domestic policy, Barack Obama was truly the deporter in chief. And Donald Trump obviously has been accused of xenophobia and rightly so. But what does that make Barack Obama if he pursued really exactly the same policies on a similar scale or even a greater scale by some metrics? He certainly there's a there's just a lot of problems there because Democrats are constantly saying, well, you know, we're being realists, we're compromising. But the truth is, if you're constantly doing something that's exactly the opposite of what you claim, you're not compromising, you're being a hypocrite. And you, certainly politics is the art of compromise, but it's not only the art of compromise. Compromise is supposed to be the exception, not the rule. Well, right. And I mean, just on that issue area to uh, punctuate your point. I mean, Trump was negotiating or attempting to negotiate with congressional Democrats, particularly House Democrats, on border wall funding in exchange not only for an extended status to DACA designees at present, but also a willingness to include another 1.1 million in addition to the 700,000 that are actual designees, 1.1 million that could have been designees but did not apply for the designation. So, I mean, that would be a solution or could have been a solution, a legislative and executive solution to the uh, the matter of, of so-called dreamers, um, but uh, the Democrats weren't willing to play ball on border wall funding. And frankly, you know, there's not a lot of people outside of uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and so forth uh, that want open borders and uh, the elimination of ICE and Customs and Border Patrol. No, I don't think there is a lot of appetite for that. I also don't think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer covered themselves with glory when they passed the recent uh, $3 trillion economic stimulus package without even bothering to negotiate with Republicans. It's one thing to try to go on the record and lay a marker a bench for what it is that they think is right, but we're in the middle of a massive economic and medical crisis right now in this mm-hmm. country with one out of four workers out of work. We don't need any kind of posturing by either the Democrats or the Republicans, we really need the political class to put their heads together and solve the, uh, the problem of the, Amer- the problems of the American people, which right now are pretty grave and stand to get worse unless we start putting people back to work and put an end to this virus. Mm-hmm. That's well said. Uh, I wanted to get to a piece you uh, penned for The Wall Street Journal as well, because uh, I think you risked cancellation by uh, making the uh, statement that police brutality affects us all. Now, you uh, explain that in a well-reasoned editorial, but I I don't know that uh, well, you know, offering things that are well-reasoned necessarily insulates you these days. But but the the point that you are trying to make about police brutality being something that is uh, a concern universally and so could be addressed universally. Right. Well, one of the frustrations of many black Americans is that they feel that whites don't really understand what they've been suffering at the hands of the police, both in terms of systemic racism as well as sort of day-to-day harassment and, of course, obviously police police shootings and physical violence. And the point I'm trying to make here is that actually the police really inflict the same exact things on whites as well, albeit not as high, disproportionately high numbers to their population. So if you're a black male in this country, you have a one in a thousand chance of being 
killed by a cop at some point in your life. But if you're just a male, it's the odds are one in 2000. So in other words, it's dangerous to encounter the police. And I was thinking, uh, you know, the, the point I'm trying to make here is whites need to wake up to the fact that when they see the flashing lights in their rearview mirror, this could be a danger to them as well. And uh, it's not something like, well, you know, uh, black people are doing this or that and they're not being compliant enough. And so they're bringing it upon themselves. The fact is we have a problem with policing in this country. We need we need uh, training needs to be very different. We need a guardian mentality over a soldier mentality. We need to demilitarize the police. Um, there's a host of things we need to do, but it's it's not. I mean, we have a race problem with policing for sure, but it's not exclusively a race problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, I, I, I don't stipulate everything you said, but I want to get your perspective on something else in terms of this debate, uh, which is the uh, characterization by Nancy Pelosi and, and well, in my home state, Senator Dick Durbin, number one, that Tim Scott's uh, uh, police reform legislation was token, quote unquote, legislation. And Nancy Pelosi suggesting that same legislation was an effort by Tim Scott and his fellow Republicans to get away with the murder of George Floyd. Is that the way we come together to do something sensible on police reform? No, it's not. And again, I think that um, policing is obviously a crisis. Um, And, you know, look, when you have um, riots and you have uh, sustained day to day protests um, that are um, that are convulsing the country, um, it's it's a crisis, and we and policing is something that has been neglected and has gotten worse over the years, and it is something that both parties are going to need to come together to solve. I mean, one would have hoped that because policing is governed locally, that and statewide, that it would have been handled on the local level, but it obviously hasn't happened, which is why I think we need some leadership from the federal government, and uh, that's just the two parties are just seemingly unwilling and unable to talk to each other in any kind of civilized way. And I think this is a, you know, the reason that Congress is consistently given like those, you know, lower approval ratings than STIs. Um, <laughs> they're just you know, yeah. absolutely, you know, not, they're not doing the people's work and I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. I think that's one thing everyone can agree on. He is Ted Rawl. He's a syndicated political cartoonist and columnist, author of two Afghanistan and back and the just released political suicide the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. Uh, how fast are we hurtling toward disintegration? This fast. Starbucks pausing all social media ads because Twitter and Facebook are not uh, moving against hate speech with the alacrity required. Starbucks releasing a statement. We believe both business leaders and policymakers need to come together to affect real change. We will pause advertising on all social media platforms while we continue discussions internally with our media partners and with civil rights organizations in an effort to stop the spread of hate speech. I'd love to get a list of those media partners and civil rights organizations to whom Starbucks is affiliated, wouldn't you? Yeah. Stopping the spread of hate speech. Maybe uh, Zuckerberg and Dorsey need to have one of those hashtag race together conversations with the their local barista. Okay. Speaking of Seattle, I mentioned this in our conversation with Chris Whalen last hour. 
uh, mentioned this op-ed, but let's uh, delve into it a little bit more because it's worth it. Peter Rex is the founder and CEO of Rex Teams, which is a tech investment and real estate firm, opining in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend as to why he's leaving Seattle for Texas. The upshot, so my employees can be free. I'm moving my business headquarters off the West Coast. We tried San Francisco. We tried Seattle. Both were wonderful in their own ways, especially in natural beauty and personal friendships. But they have become hostile to the principles and policies that enable people to live abundantly in the broadest sense. That's why my company is in the final stages of purchasing office space in Austin, Texas. By the end of the year, I hope to move dozens of employees to the Lone Star State and be ready to hire hundreds more. It's true that the company has benefited greatly from the larger pool of forward thinkers and industry disruptors in the tech hotspots of San Francisco and Seattle. But the best places to be in tech have now become some of the worst places to raise a family, practice a faith, or even think freely. This hurts my team and the business. These areas are culturally diverse, but monolithic in terms of ideology. The response to COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, has been similarly disheartening. The West Coast progressive policymakers imposed some of the nation's most regressive lockdown measures. So we've heard. And that was, you know, pre-Chaz slash CHOP experiment. Uh, Mr. Rex writes, however, even in normal times, San Francisco and Seattle go to great lengths to make life hard for families. Tell me about it. I live in Chicago. Both cities with governments dominated by crypto socialists are notorious for acting policies that raise the price of housing, drive out jobs and punish innovative companies in ways that hurt workers. Yeah. He also tackles the whole the argument I hear about uh, Chicago as well in the Midwest is, oh, it's the talent pool. we got to stay here because the, the job talent pool is so deep as compared to, you know, mid market areas, your Austin's and your Charleston's and your Nashville's and. And the like. Uh, Mr. Rex says of that talent pool argument, I reject it. I reject that answer. The biggest talent pool in the world doesn't matter if the ocean that surrounds it is intellectually shallow. If a business is based in a place that expects social and political conformity, then innovation will falter eventually because it depends on pushing the boundaries. That's why we're leaving the West Coast and heading to Texas. Godspeed to Mr. Rex and his business and his employees in Austin. I suspect you're going to be hearing. A lot more of those stories for many of the same reasons that Mr. Rex outlined. Thank you for joining us on another installment of the Dan Proft Show. We appreciate you tuning in and hope you do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.